Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Well, I have to say it was the, the triumph of good over evil. It was the retur- return of the golden age. It was the vindication of all that's good and right. It was the 42 to 27 dismantling of the Ohio State University Buckeyes by the glorious Michigan Wolverines. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I welcome back James Kukios. We take a look at the Morrison and Forster November Top 10 International Corruption Developments. The issues we look at include the OECD updates for uh, combating foreign bribery, a dismissal of an FCPA and money laundering case, the SEC and whistleblowers, former coal executive pleads guilty under an Egyptian bribery scheme, and corruption in an international adoption. All on this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report from the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. I am once again joined by MoFo partner James Kukios. Today, we're going to take a look at uh, the firm's always great top 10 international anti-corruption development for no- this time for November 2021. But James, before we get there, uh, we had another momentous development in November that you and I have to take some time to crow over. So what did you see uh, in November? A couple of different events that uh, struck you as important. Well, I have to say it was the the triumph of good over evil. It was the return of the golden age. It was the vindication of all that's good and right. It was the 42 to 27 dismantling of the Ohio State University Buckeyes by the glorious Michigan Wolverines. So it, uh, it was pretty sweet. Uh, and then you, you were able to see the Big Ten Championship game. We uh, stumbled a little bit against Georgia, but uh, on the whole, uh, it was a heck of a season for the Blue. Indeed it was. Go Blue. So, James, on the newsletter, uh, you started off by uh, some commentary uh, from, about the OEDC recommending uh, updates for combating foreign bribery. And I know you've been involved in uh, the OECD a couple of times. Uh, I've been involved uh, as well. But what did you see from the OECD, new or different, uh, in this recommendation? Sure. So way, way back in 2009, the OECD uh, Working Group on Bribery put forth an anti-bribery recommendation that a couple things um, made recommendations to uh, countries on how to best combat foreign bribery. So for various enforcement activities, um, public awareness drives, things like that. 
And then also they had their um, good practice guidance for companies on how to um, implement things in their compliance programs that will help fight anti-bribery. Um, obviously, the anti-bribery, foreign bribery landscape has changed tremendously um, over the last 12 years um, since that was released in, in 2009. And the OECD took a look and said, you know, are there things that we can do to refresh that guidance and potentially supplement it um, where, where things have, you know, um, developed over the years? So that's really what they did. It's a it's a highly technical document in many ways, and in many ways it um, is really more for countries and enforcement authorities. There were some tweaks to the um, good practice guidance for companies as well, um, but a lot of it was was more technically directed towards countries and their enforcement agencies. A couple of things that I thought from that perspective were helpful. Um, number one, the um, the OECD did recommend that countries do more to combat the demand side of bribery. Um, obviously, the FCPA is a supply side, meaning it focuses only on the bribe payers and not on the bribe receivers. And that is also what the OECD um, Anti-Bribery Convention does as well. But many people in the industry, um, you know, companies, uh, lots of folks have said, you know, there's been not enough focus on bribe demands on the on the on the demand side and so there needs to be more in that regard and the OECD did that was one of the recommendations that com, com, uh, countries try to focus more on the demand side of bribery number two and this is one that you know I really was interested in um, because my experience as a government and in private practice have been so different and that's data protection you know, when I was a, a, a cynical federal prosecutor and a, co a company came in and said, we can't provide you that document because of data privacy and data blocking um, laws, I just assumed it was a terrible document and they were trying to hide it from me. Um, <laughs> you know, our, our reaction was BS. Like, you're just trying to, to hide that. And then I got on this side and I said, hokey smokes, it's real. <laughs> uh, you, you actually like, this is a, this is a big deal, especially for some clients in, in jurisdictions where, you know, there's, there's actual real penalties for, for violating these laws. Um, and it made for very tough discussions with DOJ and it made difficult decisions with the client's part about how to cooperate. And so one thing I was very happy to see is the OECD um, working group on bribery recommended that countries ensure that data protection laws do not unduly impede international law enforcement cooperation or corporate compliance programs. That would also be obviously um, third-party due diligence and things like that because some people have expressed concern that GDPR um, can make it difficult for com uh, companies to do the third-party due diligence they need to do. So I thought it was really great that the OECD came forward and said data protection is important, data privacy is important, but let's be sensible about this and, you know, not enforce it in such a way that it either impedes enforcement or it impedes uh, good compliance behaviors by companies. And so those are the two kind of big takeaways um, that I think were, were particular. I'm sure there are other ones that were significant as well, but those are the two that I really focused on. 
James, next up, we had uh, a case probably uh, only you and I and the rest of the FCPA geeks out there uh, could really sink our teeth into. But there was a decision out of the Southern District of Texas dismissing an FCPA and money laundering charge against a Swiss wealth manager. What did you see in this case? So this is one of our longer entries um, of all time, Tom, I think. And it, it, it's probably because I did geek out a little too much um, about it, but it was a very difficult, if I'm going to be frank, it was a very difficult to understand decision. Long story short, if I can oversimplify, the allegations are that there was a Swiss wealth manager who helped a bunch of um, dirty Venezuelans, both officials and um, some folks who are dealing with them, set up a series of um, shell companies and bank accounts and things like that to launder bribes. And this is involving the state-owned oil company of Venezuela, PDVSA. Essentially that this um, Swiss wealth manager was uh, assisting them in paying bribes and laundering the proceeds of the bribes. Um, Interesting fact pattern. uh, She was based in Switzerland, never stepped foot in the United States, part of this, but she was working for some um, U.S. domestic concerns to do this because a lot of the folks were based in Houston. The um, the um, the defense attorneys brought a motion to dismiss based on the Hoskins decision, uh, which basically said that you can't charge a um, non-U.S. citizen working for a non-U.S. Uh, company who's never set foot in the United States. Um, with conspiring to violate the FCPA because they're outside the scope. Um, The judge dismissed the FCPA and the money laundering charges on on a really extension of Hoskins that I don't think makes a lot of sense. But I think I understood. I had to read this decision a lot, and that's why it's three paragraphs here, to try to understand it. Long story short is DOJ brought a conspiracy charge against the Swiss, Swiss Swiss wealth manager, both based on being an agent of a domestic concern, meaning that she helped U.S. companies and U.S. people set up these vehicles to facilitate bribery, and on the territorial jurisdiction, DD3 part of the FCPA. And I can see where that's a problem. You know, there is no allegation that she stepped foot in the United States. And if you apply the logic of Hoskins, you can say, therefore, she doesn't fall within DD3 and you can't charge her with conspiring to violate DD3. I don't actually know why DOJ put DD3 in there, but they did. Um, and the judge seems to have confused those two, um, kind of melded the DD2 and the DD3 together in the Hoskins decision and said, basically, you have to form the agency relationship in the United States for this to violate the FCPA. I don't think that's right. I think it was perhaps some confusion over the charging decisions. Um, and DOJ immediately appealed. And I, you know, I'm not a betting man. Um, but if I were, I think that they have a very good chance of winning an appeal on the DD2 part of that. Um, because it does seem, at least if the allegations are true, she did, uh, she was an agent of a domestic concern in that she acted on behalf of U.S. companies to set up these vehicles that, that allowed them to pay bribes. Um, it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting to see if that, you know, what actually happens, even if they succeed, you know, 
they're going to have to be able to prove at trial that, you know, she was acting in capacity, that she knew what she was doing, that she was doing this intentionally uh, uh, for the purpose of, of assisting them and paying these bribes. So they're, you know, it's not a slam dunk, even if uh, DOJ wins this appeal, but it, it seems to me that the judge probably got it wrong on some admittedly very arcane, as you said, geeky FCPA issues. <laughs> so we'll, we'll have to see what happens in that one. A lot of people made, you know, there was a, a there's some commentary here about what a what an important decision this this was, but I'm 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 remaining. I'm going to withhold judgment until we see what the Fifth Circuit does. James, next up, we had uh, a summary of the SEC report in whistleblower tips and awards, and although uh, not uh, many of them are in the FCPA realm, we had a huge increase in fiscal year 2021. What did you see in this? And then I'm going to follow up uh, on a question on the strategy of countering corruption around whistleblowers after you tell us about the SEC report. Yeah, so every year uh, in November, the uh, SEC uh, releases an annual report to Congress regarding the the Dodd-Frank whistleblower program. You know, we've consistently seen an upward trajectory, but 2021 was just kind of that on steroids. Uh, SEC reported that they received a 76% increase in tips from fiscal year 2020. Uh, it was the largest number of tips received in a single year. SEC also reported that um, they uh, awarded over half a billion dollars to over 100 individuals in fiscal year 2021. That was not only the largest dollar amount ever awarded in a year, it was not only the largest number of individuals awarded in a single year, but it was more than uh, the amount of money awarded in 2021 was more than in all prior fiscal years combined. So it was just a very, very um, active whistleblower time for the SEC. As you mentioned, you know, there was a 76%, as I said, there's a 76% increase in tips um, overall. And as you, as you mentioned, Tom, that included FCPA tips in, increasing. They didn't increase by quite as much. Um, there was a 24% increase in FCPA allegations um, from fiscal year 2020. But it just, just co- goes to show that whistleblowers are an issue for companies. Uh, the award program seems to be working in that it is generating more tips and what that means is that companies are going to have to deal with more whistleblowers. Really important that companies, you know, take the time to look at what their um, uh, reporting mechanisms are are up to snuff to make sure that you can, as much as possible, encourage internal whistleblowers. Make sure that you have your anti-retaliation policies in place, and make sure that your investigation procedures are in place, including thinking about how to provide updates to whistleblowers so that they feel satisfied by the internal process and don't go to the SEC or other enforcement agencies, don't feel like they need to. Obviously can't prevent them, shouldn't prevent them from doing that, but you know, make them feel like they're being heard and that things are being taken care of internally to at least um, reduce the impetus to go uh, to the enforcement agencies. We'll be right back with more from James Kukios after this message from our sponsor. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, James, what I wanted to, to, to maybe tie it into, we've seen other uh, departments or agencies at least have whistleblower awards in 2021. Uh, the AML law of 2020 specifically had a whistleblower provision, but I wanted to ask you about one of the components on the strategy on countering corruption, specifically called out whistleblowers. And I guess I just wanted to ask, do you see this as uh, the government seeing this as a very valuable initiative uh, that is uh, given the U.S. government tangible result that they're going to continue to advocate for whistleblower protection and whistleblower awards now, perhaps even on a broader basis. That's exactly what it seems like. You know, SEC has seen all these increases. They're they're giving out more awards, which suggests that the the they feel like the tips they're getting are valuable. And we do see the other agencies um, now thinking about having their own whistleblower. Um, rewards programs as well. So it does seem like this is a trend that's going to continue. James, our next uh, uh, case or matter uh, is a uh, FCPA individual enforcement action. And I'm proud that we can actually talk about one that does not relate to PDVSA, um, number one. But number two, this one had some interesting issues around ephemeral messaging. So I was wondering if you could tell us about Frederick Cushmore and how he got into trouble and what uh, you how you use this as a teaching moment. Sure. So he was a um, the defendant Frederick Cushmore Jr. Uh, was a former vice president and head of international sales at a Pennsylvania-based coal company, uh, and he was allegedly and pled guilty to um, a, a scheme to bribe officials of an Egyptian state-owned enterprise. Um, for the purpose of um, obtaining approximately $143 million in coal contracts over a period of about four or five years. Um, and the thing that I, you know, it, it's a, as far as that goes, it's a fairly typical FCPA fact pattern. You've got a um, domestic concern paying bribes to, you know, state-owned, officials of state-owned enterprise to get business. What I did really find interesting, Tom, and what you alluded to was, there were some very specific and pointed references in the uh, in the resolution about the use of ephemeral messaging. There was an allegation in the information to which he pled guilty. There were several that really emphasized that you know Cushmore and his conspirators were specifically using ephemeral messaging systems. In this case, it was WhatsApp uh, because they thought it would help them get away with it and not get caught. Um, and so I quoted one of the one of the allegations in there, which was that Cushmore allegedly uh, instructed one of his co-conspirators to, quote, do more on this since it's encrypted, unquote. And that was a very clear message. Not only did it, you know, show criminal intent, which is always good for DOJ, but I think that they really want to emphasize this because they really do see encrypted messages as a real compliance problem for companies. 
in a way that, you know, bad guys are trying to get away with this. When I, when I started um, at DOJ, it was Hotmail and Gmail and Yahoo, right? Uh, uh, individuals moved from their work email accounts to their personal email accounts, not realizing that law enforcement could get those records through subpoenas. And I made a lot of great cases that way. Um, you know, and then people figured out, hey, you know, we, we really, you know, maybe shouldn't use Gmail and Hotmail and Yahoo anymore and, and we should go to something else. And they started using text messaging. But you know what? You can also get that through subpoenas oftentimes, things like that. And so, you know, it's, it's always the, the cat and mouse game. Um, but I think DOJ now sees, especially the proliferation of these, uh, you know, WhatsApps and WeChats and things like that, that they really need the need to emphasize to companies that they need to get a hold of, you know, get these things under control um, because determined employees are using these things to try to commit crimes and, and get away with it. So this all start, you know, there was the whole in the um, uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy where it started out by saying, you know, you have to ban ephemeral messaging. And then there's a big uproar from the business community like, well, we can't do that. You know, sometimes like that's what our customers use. You know, if you're in Brazil, everybody uses WhatsApp. They don't have great right. cellular service. They have better Wi-Fi or they, they don't trust the government because they they want to use an encrypted service. And WeChat, everybody uses in China, everybody uses WeChat. And so they relaxed it, obviously, a little bit, but they're still trying to send the message to companies. You have to do something about this. You know, we may give you a little more discretion on what to do, but you got to do something because people are getting, you know, this is what this is what. Uh, your employees are doing. So I, I just found that to be a very interesting part of that resolution that I wanted to emphasize. James, for our final uh, a matter from your November newsletter, we had a really interesting, once again, individual FCPA enforcement action, but this one involving adoption and visa issues. And what struck me, uh, and I don't want to say why I like this case so much because I don't want anyone to ever have to plead guilty, but I found it to be an incredibly powerful learning tool because it was really outside the kind of standard uh, business type bribe. So what did you see in this case that uh, interested you and how do you use it uh, as a teaching moment or lesson learned? It's interesting, Tom. I mean, when I, this was actually a recurring issue when I was at DOJ. Um, The, uh, concerns about bribery in the international adoption sphere um, for a lot of reasons, oftentimes, and, and I cite the FCPA opinion procedure releases in our, in our news release, a lot of times um, officials from countries where children are being adopted from, from those countries to the United States, they want to come to the United States to make sure that the adoption agencies are treating them well and that the children from their country are um, being being taken care of and treated correctly. And the question in those cases was always, well, can we pay for them to do that? Um, you know, as the adoption agency, can we pay to bring the foreign officials over here to for this reason? And so there were a number of FCPA opinion procedure releases that, that we did on that issue. At the same time, there's an even more unseemly side of the adoption, international adoption, where at least if this case is, is accurate, people are actually paying bribes to local officials to do things like terminate 
parental rights, to pay bribes to judges to terminate parental rights so that the children can be adopted from the country into the United States. Um, you know, paying bribes to, to, to various other parts of the um, uh, probation officers to find them, you know, parents are unfit, things like that, to try to facilitate the adoptions. Very, I mean, it's very tragic. People are being robbed of their children because of this. And, and it turns out, you know, like it or not, international adoption is a business. Um, and, and so people are paying bribes to facilitate that business. Um, and it's really, it's really um, sad and, and unseemly um, part of, unfortunate part of it. And, and this is, you know, this is part of the only, it's related to one of the only um, adoption-related uh, guilty pleas, which was from back in August 2019. This is another person in the same conspiracy. But I think, you know, there's a couple things to be learned here. Um, it's not just paying bribes to, to get a contract. It, you know, DOJ and the courts have, have taken a broad view of, of business purpose, and courts have agreed with that. And, you know, they've brought in enforcement actions like this one saying, like, look, it's not just paying a government contracting officer to get a contract or paying somebody to get an oil field lease. If you bribe a judge to get a favorable decision that helps your business, that's an FCPA violation too. If you bribe a probation officer or a court registrar for some decision that helps your business, that can be an FCPA violation too. And so I think that's a very, to help people realize it's a broader, it's broader than just paying money for a contract. Well, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But uh, as always, I learned a lot and uh, I have a new uh, guidepost for how uh, good I think podcasts are. It's number one, how much fun I have, or number two, how much I learned. And I had a ton of fun and I learned a lot. So I look forward to uh, visiting you, with you on the next series of uh, MOFO International Anti-Corruption Development letter, uh, Newsletters. Thanks again. Well, it's always fun when we can start out by talking about a victory over Ohio State. It's been pretty few and far between over the last couple of years. Let's hope that this is just the first of many. Amen. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will check out my five-part podcast series on the trial of the century, the Enron trial, which recently premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast series, I visit with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial for the Houston Chronicle as its business columnist. We take a look at what led to the trial, some of the key witnesses and moments from the trial, and what the trial inevitably meant going forward. It's a fascinating look at the Enron trial some 15 years after it occurred. I know you'll enjoy this special podcast series. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.